Hello, welcome to Rising with the Tide. I'm Skander, as always joined by Jamie, and today we have Zachary Foster, who is a historian of Palestine with a PhD in Middle East history, uh, and he's joining us today to talk about his PhD thesis, mostly called The Invention of Palestine, but also about his area of expertise in part, which is uh, gathering documents, as I said in our intro call, a little bit like Indiana Jones in my view, um, <laughs> because from the stories that I gathered from the actual thesis as well, there were some quite funny, uh, funny things happening as you try and enter some libraries and things. So I'm quite excited to hear about that. And then if we get some time, we'll talk about the uh, environmental issues surrounding Palestine today and in the recent past. Uh, but yeah. Zachary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hello. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So should we maybe start with the idea of how you got into the uh, the subject area of Palestine and what kind of pushed you to study this part of the world, that time period as well of, of well, uh, actually all of history, because <laughs> from your thesis, I thought you were going to go into like maybe 18th century, 19th century, 20th, but actually you start all the way back as well, like hundreds of thousands of years ago. <laughs> yeah, so maybe I can just firstly briefly address the question of why I start hundreds of thousands of years ago, rather than say the 18th century. And I think the reason is because I didn't know where to start. I didn't know when I would find the first instance of the term Palestinian used in history. And so I think had I arbitrarily chosen the 18th century or the 15th century or the 19th century, I would have always wondered, well, what if I had just started a century earlier? Would I have mm -hmm. found a reference to the Palestinians earlier than, mm -hmm. than the point when I started looking? And, and so that forced me to really ask the question, okay, well, when, when should I even start looking? And, and that really forced me to ask the question, like, when would I expect to start to find instances of the term Palestinian used in history? Which begged, begs the question, in my view, like, what is a Palestinian identity? When, when, broadly speaking, in history, do we see identities like Palestinian come about and flourish? and proliferate, which I think forces us to ask the question, like, what is a Palestinian identity? And that's that's one of the, the questions I really I really try to address in my in my research is like the more theoretical, the more abstract question of what do we even mean when we say Palestinian identity? Mm -hmm. So I, I would say that that is a brief answer to the question of like, why do I start yeah. in the pre Neolithic world? The let's call it like the the world before we even have any written texts, the world mm -hmm. before historians are comfortable even uh, mm. writing history because there are historians use written documents for the most part. Historians do not use archaeological evidence. They mm. tend not to use, um, you know, images, cave paintings. These are not things historians are comfortable using as sources. And so historians tend not to even look at that period of human history, even though I think every historian would agree there's nothing less interesting about the period from 10,000 years ago to 100,000 years ago from a historian's point of view than there is from the period when we have historical records, written records. So I would say that that's sort of the short answer to that question. Um, yeah, but yeah. And uh, in terms of so in terms of how you yourself got involved with uh, the history of Palestine, how would you? Yeah, so I would say my introduction to Palestine was was through Israel. I grew up in a Jewish environment, going to synagogue, 
going uh, to Jewish summer camp uh, every year, going, uh, attending events with my Jewish youth group, my Zionist youth youth group. In fact, we traveled to Israel when I was 15 years old with my Jewish youth group. Um, and I would say those are the things that led me to grow interested in, in Israel. And so when I went to university, I decided to study abroad, spent a semester in Jerusalem, wanted to learn Hebrew, was in, enrolled in an ulpan, which is an intensive Hebrew language course. And mm -hmm. lo and behold, half of my class were, was Palestinian, which was pretty shocking yeah. to me because here I thought yeah. Palestinians growing up in Israel, well, why don't they already know Hebrew? Like, why isn't Hebrew their native language? I thought the native language of this country was Hebrew. Like everything was so confusing to me. Um, and I think that is what, what led me down, what, what was really the first moment where I recall being really curious about Palestinians and what their history was, what, what their stories were. Um, and so started meeting with Palestinians on campus. Um, after I returned to the United States, after that semester abroad, I just got so interested in, in the history of Israel-Palestine, uh, more from the historian's point of view. Um, because as I mentioned, I was very much raised with, not the historian's point of view, I was raised with a Let's call it a propagandist point of view, a, a Zionist Jewish propagandist point of view. And so as I started to read the, the history uh, written by historians, uh, I started to learn a whole bunch of new things that I was not previously aware of. Things mm. about um, you know, things about the 1948 war that were quite disturbing. Things about the origins mm. and the history of the Zionist movement, which were quite disturbing. Um, the Zionists throughout the 1930s and 1940s, as I started to learn in reading uh, the historian's version of Zionist history, Zionists were thinking about the concept of transfer, which was, uh, I would say, a, sonata, um, a pseudonym for uh, ethnic cleansing. But Zionists yeah, were yeah. Uh, debating and discussing how it is that they would be able to establish a Jewish state uh, uh, on top of a country that was 60, 70, 80 percent Palestinian. How could they possibly achieve that? And so they asked themselves, do we have to expel them? Maybe we can convince them to leave voluntarily. Um, so these are the questions Zionists are debating in the 1930s and 40s, which are incredibly disturbing if you grow mm -hmm. up with this idea that Zionists are making the desert bloom and draining the swamps and attracting investment and development, right? That's a narrative I was raised with, which, as I said, stood very much in contradiction to the history um, as I understood it, as historians have written it. Um, and so I would say that was really the trigger for me, what led me to to start to get much more interested in Palestinian history. And that ultimately is what I would say led me to pursue graduate research in uh, in the history of Palestine and ultimately pursue my PhD research on the origins and development of, of the name Palestine, of the word Palestine itself, as well as the history and the origins and development of the Palestinian people. Um, let's maybe start with just the fact that in your thesis, like you yourself said, a huge portion of, of the document is, is, um, is reserved to like the, the development of this idea of what is an identity and what is an, uh, even a nation, uh, as, as you kind of, uh, put the question as well. I wonder when, when you kind of see the first um because we're i guess we'll stick to palestine for now but when you see the first uh um what's the word here i'm looking for <laughs> oh shit i'll edit this out because i i'm having a massive blank uh when you see the first notion <laughs> no, evidence no, of <laughs> evidence, indication yeah. of yeah yeah exactly i wonder when you see the first evidence 
of the idea of Palestine come up in history? Could I just uh, add a little piggyback onto that? Because uh, it's just a really, in, you know, from what you said earlier, it's a really interesting just thought because I'm not that familiar with the historical research. So just the idea of researching in prehistory, just how how does that even possible? Like that's, that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, that's, that's, those are both great questions. And I feel like I could probably address them together. So maybe starting with that second question of like, how is it that, you try and understand identity before written records. Yeah. I mean, that that's sort of maybe how I might rephrase the question because it is really hard, right? Like everything we know about uh, identity from the 19th century is based on things like diaries, manuscripts, books, letters, right? Th- those are the mm-hmm. those are the tools that historians use. Those are the sources historians access to try and figure out how people define themselves. And first and foremost, we look at the words they use to describe themselves. I think that's probably the best place to look at to try and figure out how people identified. Of course, the problem is before uh, written records, we don't know what words people use to describe themselves. And so I think what we're forced to do is try to find evidence of... of imagined communities, to use Benedict Anderson's phrase, but we want to try and find evidence that Homo sapiens were doing things that that indicated they could they had some kind of imagined identity. And the evidence that I I I look for is, for example, some some of things like cave paintings, um, some things like burial rituals, um. Some things that suggest that we had elaborate ceremonies, um, things that um, that suggest that we had complex thought and complex language, because I think as soon as you have evidence that Homo sapiens have complex language, and 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 lived in relatively complex societies, I think that's another piece of evidence. By the way, then I think you you have to believe that there were imagined identities based around uh, those settlements in those communities. Um, so so for example. Um, you know, uh, w- w- one piece of evidence that I look to is that in in you have a number of of, of hunter gatherer societies that um, I think. By the way, that's another place to look is you know Homo sapiens before we were settled peoples before we uh, farmed and til- told tilled the soil and domesticated animals. We we were primarily uh, nomadic peoples. We were primarily hunter gatherers, and and so if you look at nomadic peoples that survived into the present day and ask ourselves like what kinds of words do they use to describe places and themselves? I think that's another way uh, to try and get at that. Um, so I would say there, there are a number of indirect ways. It's usually through either archaeological evidence of complex um, you know, human societies, um, it, it, or it could be through art, uh, which we have, or, or musical instruments is another thing that suggests humans were you know, doing things for like non- um, you know, do, doing things that suggested they had complex identities. I, but again, it, it's obviously all speculative because we have no idea what words they used to describe themselves. Um, but then to the question of like, when do we start to see evidence of Palestine in history? Well, it's really the first the first written records that start to appear in the ancient Near East come from their three primary uh, groups of people that produced ancient that produced records in the ancient world. We have the ancient Egyptians, uh, the pharaohs, the pyramids. They produced hieroglyphics and uh that is i think the very the, the first evidence uh of, for this word this root pe le te uh, or pere se te there's different mm-hmm. uh, permutations in different texts and uh, but basically that that root appears in egyptian hieroglyphic sources you can check the 
the Wikipedia page called A History of the Timeline of the Name Palestine, which lists something like maybe 10 or so ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic sources that have been uh, deciphered and translated. And it's Mm -hmm. all there on the Wikipedia page. Um, And so that was the first uh, uh, source. That was the first body of textual evidence uh, for this term in human history. I think the second is the Hebrew Bible uh, refers to Pleshet, uh, which is uh, used to describe the land, what is today basically Gaza. Um, the, okay. the cities that comprise the ancient Philistine population, there were five cities. Mm-hmm. This was described as Pleshet, and then the people were described as the Plishtim. So it appears in the Hebrew Bible and, and the New Testament. It also appears in ancient Assyrian, uh, sorry, ancient Assyrian sources. Um, uh, and so you have three body, uh, three bodies of, of 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 historical texts. In each of those bodies, you have the same root, the same basic uh, word. We don't always know the pronunciation because we don't really know how these languages were were were, were pronounced. But we do have uh, we do have evidence that this term appeared in all three of those ancient traditions. And then from there, the word gets carried over into uh, into Aramaic, and then into to Greek as well as Latin and Arabic and all the modern European and Western and Eastern and non-Western and non-Eastern languages. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can we maybe just like fast forward very quickly to uh, 1898, because this seems like a very important date uh, and we can get lost, I think in the annals of history forever in those like thousands of years, but just to take a quite like precise point that might help us, uh, find a, a foundation for, for this conversation right now is, is 1898. So, so you mentioned that as being quite a, a starting point for the, um, for the use, the self use of the identity of Palestine and even starting with, uh, with some Russians in Palestine. Could you tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. So, the first instance of the term uh, Palestinian in Arabic or Philistini or Philistinian, the plural, the first instance I've been able to find of that term in Arabic in the 19th century uh, is in 1898 by a guy by the name of Khalil Bedas. Khalil Bedas went to high school at the Russian Teachers Training Seminary in Nazareth. And this was a, a Russian missionary school uh, for some context. In the mid-19th century, uh, Russians, Americans, Germans, French, Irish, British, and others, I'm probably missing some, (laughs) but uh, they all opened up schools in the Ottoman Empire. (laughs) Why is that? Um, There are a lot of reasons, but um, uh, in the case of Russia, the reason was that the, uh, the, the, the greater context here is the great game. As it was known in the 19th century, you have the British Empire and the Russian Empire are competing for global domination. And uh, and as part of their effort to conquer as many parts of the world as possible, um, they are uh, funding a, a missionary uh, expeditions uh, to places in the Ottoman Empire to establish schools. Those schools would act as almost as a um, as the first kind of inroad, the first kind of Russian inroad into the Ottoman Empire. I think mm-hmm. ultimately the vision for the Russian Empire and the reason why they funded these educational missions was because they thought that would lead to more, that would lead to economic mm-hmm. and political mm-hmm. influence, which would potentially maybe even one day lead to 
political or military occupation of the Ottoman Empire. So this was these were not altruistic attempts to to help <laughs> out the uh, to help educate the Arabic speaking peoples of the Ottoman yeah. Empire. These were indirect uh, attempts to try and exert economic and military influence over the Ottoman Empire. And so mm-hmm. uh, beginning in the 1850s, uh, you have all of these missionary schools opening up. And this particular school is founded in the mid 1880s by Russian missionaries, like I said, that were funded by the Russian Empire. They open up this school. In the school, they start teaching things that were previously not really taught in Palestine. So they start teaching uh, with books titled The History of Palestine, The Geography of Palestine. There's evidence that there were Palestine maps circulating in the school. Uh, they took the, the 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 children and and the students on field trips to the holy sites around Palestine. Mm-hmm. We know that, um, and lo and behold, some of the students start calling themselves Palestinians in their writing. Not just Khalil Beras, by the way, but uh, uh, Najib Nasad is also a student of that Russian teachers training seminary. He also starts to use the term Palestinian in his writings as early as 1901. In fact, he writes an article for an Egyptian publication in 1901, where he says Mm -hmm. uh, the title of the article is A Palestinian Describes a Palestinian Town. It's an Arabic article. These are all Arabic sources I'm translating. But basically, um, you know, you have already evidence from the late 19th century and early 20th century that graduates of that school uh, are using the term Palestinian. Salim mm-hmm. Kobain is another one um, mm-hmm. who uses mm-hmm. the term again in another article he publishes in in the same uh, publication that Najib Nasar uh, published that article with actually the exact same title. A Palestinian describes a Palestinian town. So, um, so I think uh, already from the late 19th and early 20th century, there is very uncontrovertible evidence that the people of Palestine. Uh, the Arabic-speaking inhabitants of the people of Palestine are calling themselves Palestinians. And mm-hmm. I would say even further that if if the term starts appearing in writing in the 1890s, what that means is that it probably was in use before then, right? Because this is just evidence. This is the incontrovertible evidence that the term was in use, which mm-hmm. means that if for him to even have used the term, presumably it must have meant that it was understood by people. For it to have yeah, been understood yeah, yeah. by people, presumably that means it must have already been in circulation and in yeah, use. Yeah, it didn't that. just pop up like that yeah, the yeah. day before, and everybody was like, "Oh, well, <laughs> I guess I'm Palestinian now." <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, you do mention uh, in I think oh, God, my if my dad listens to this, he would absolutely murder me over my Arabic pronunciation. But I'm just gonna anglify it. it but Muhammad bin Ahmad al Mukadasi, uh, I guess 10th century ish. Correct. Uh, yeah. Um, you said that he was one of the few Muslims or Arabs before that date to identify himself as a Palestinian. Um, including one point where he says that during his uh. So during his uh, travels abroad, he had been called 36 different names, one of which was Palestinian. Um, I wonder, basically, because you also mentioned some coins that have been minted in the past by caliphs with uh, such names and things. It's clear that there is a lack of institutionalization of the name before that magic date. Um, but I wonder, like, what, how how you view the evolution of what people uh, saw as Palestine for that pre, pre-written pre era, let's say, before 1898. Because I'm sure, you know, and I, I know, I guess, from reading parts of your thesis, that what people 
thought of as Palestine before it was written and after it was written was quite different. That's a great point. So during the first three centuries of Islamic rule in the Middle East, um, the Muslims used the term Palestine in administrative parlance. They divided up the lands conquered uh, into different political administrative units. One of them was called the Jund Philistine or the District of Palestine. Um, and that was a case uh, from the time of the Muslim conquest, from the time of the conquest of, of Palestine. Um, you know, we're talking well, we're talking seventh century, eighth century uh, to to the end of the 11th century when the crusader, when the first crusade um, left Palestine in ruins. Um, so so for a period of what's that? We're talking three centuries. The term Palestine is used at the political level. Um, that's really important, I think, to understand whether or not people within Palestine are going to be using the term Palestinian to describe themselves. Um, it, it, it's important because in every major text written uh, in the 8th and 9th and 10th centuries in Arabic, the term Palestine appears frequently, right? Anyone mm -hmm. who's writing about the, the, the lands uh, uh, conquered by the Muslims, anyone who's writing the history of those stories uh, in the 9th and the 10th century, is using the term Palestine. Anyone who's, for example, writing a Hadith commentary, and as you mm -hmm. probably know, when you're trying to tr uh, trace the Isnad, the chain of transmitters, you want to go back uh, to the original, um, mm -hmm. to, to, to Muhammad himself, to, to the Prophet himself, and you trace uh, the chain of transmitters, and you always want to, and one important thing when you're chasing, uh, when you're training, uh, sorry, when you're, uh, one important uh, thing to do when you're tracing that chain mm -hmm. is to, also identify where those people are from, because yeah. if one of them is from Iraq and another one of them is from Morocco, well, how is it that a person living in Iraq transmitted a hadith <laughs> mm. to someone living in Morocco? It doesn't. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work that way. So actually, they're using even the term Palestine when describing the the chain of transmitters, and even in some cases, they're even calling them Philistini. Um, I found a few instances mm -hmm. where the the transmitters himself are described as a Philistini, as a Palestinian, but. But and so the, the, there is some evidence that the term was in use. But the but the, the one the, the, the most remarkable uh, example of the term Palestine used in the, the ancient world in in the um, in the first three to four centuries of Muslim rule in Palestine is this guy Ahmed ibn Maqt ibn Ahmed al Maqdisi or al Muqaddisi. There's I think mm -hmm. a debate about whether he's al Maqdisi or al Muqaddisi. Uh, let's just leave that aside for the for the moment. <laughs> but um, but like the, he uses the term Palestinian multiple times mm -hmm. in his in his geographical treatise it, it's it's really considered one of the most renowned works uh, of geography in the early islamic period written in the 10th century um and and there are a lot of reasons why this particular author and in in this particular work um is using the term palestine and is calling himself palestinian i think number 1 maqdisi was very highly educated. He uses rhythmic prose in his poetry. Um, he is, uh, uh, and I think, by the way, if you want to identify with Palestine, which is a large place, which is an imagined place, which, you know, you probably going to need a lot of education. Like I said, you probably have mm -hmm. read a lot of, of those history books, those geography books that we mentioned. Mm -hmm. You probably heard the term Palestine used by historians and geographers. So mm -hmm. it's familiar with you. If you're a peasant, if you can't read, you're less likely to be familiar with these types of terms. So that, that's, I think, an important thing that he was highly educated. Mm -hmm. He also was a, a global uh, traveler. He traveled 
to and in, in the specific example where he cites the um, this Iranian uh, uh, this example where he was traveling in Iran in Shiraz where he was asked you know um, oh, who are you he says I'm you know I'm Palestinian I think that's really important because I think people who are traveling the world who are visiting many different types of regions just have a more natural grasp of just the idea of a region itself because mm-hmm, they are mm-hmm. visiting many regions. I think if you lived your whole life in Salfit and the furthest you ever traveled to was Nilain or Jerusalem and you've never traveled more than 100 kilometers from your home, it's probably less likely you're going to be identifying with these large spaces. So yeah. I think that that's another reason he's using the term. And then the third reason I would give is that in the early Islamic period, um, in his era, in the 10th century, um, geography has reached a zenith in popularity. You have many, many geographical treatises that were written in the 10th century. And so mm-hmm. I think people who are uh, reading lots of geographical works, who are inclined to be interested in geography, are also just naturally, what is geography? It's a study of physical places. So I think if you're if you're living in an era where physical places are interesting to study and are a popular thing to write about, then it's much more, I think, natural for you to identify with those physical places. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think there, for those three or four reasons, it's not to me a surprise that someone like Al-Makhdisi identifies as Palestinian. But as you said, we don't have very much evidence that people did identify as Palestinian in the 8th or 9th or 10th century. We have a couple of Hadith transmitters and we have Al-Makhdisi and that's about it. So I, I guess, like, a question that's kind of come to mind then is, like, given the importance of these educational institutions like the Russian seminary, seminaries in, in growing and forming this uh, popular, popular concept of, um, of Palestinian identity, would you say this, this, this sort of, like, popular formation of it, would you say it was incidental? I guess from the, the Russians' perspective, you know, if they were referring to the students as Palestinian or, like, I guess providing you know educational context to make them consider themselves i mean was this at all intentional or was just were they just like being academic in how they referred to them i don't think it was intentional i don't think that germans and russians and americans showed up uh, asking themselves how can we convince these muslims and christians and jews and arabs (laughs) and jerusalemites and jaffans and nablusites and khalidis and uh, and nabulsis and and Hussein is, how can we convince them uh, to, in addition to their family, their city, their religious identities, also identify with Palestine and call themselves Palestinians? No, I do not think that was intentional. I think it was very much incidental. Um, I think, however, that if they had thought a bit more about what they were doing, they may have been able to predict that they're going to lead to the establishment and the formation Mm -hmm. of new identities. I think Mm -hmm. that, for example, one thing that is not well appreciated, in part because it's not well documented, is that these schools took students out of their homes and put them in new environments, in basically boarding school environments, okay? And I think that if you're a young person and you're going to develop a new identity and develop, what does that really mean? It means you're kind of becoming a new person, a person different mm-hmm. from the, 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 your, your parents and your cousins and your brothers and your sisters. You're developing a new identity. What better place to do that than when you're removed from the environment in which you were raised. And that was exactly the case with this boarding school in in Nazareth. Uh, These students that were in the boarding school, many of them were not even from Nazareth. They were from villages in the Galilee. They came from other parts of Palestine. And so I think that played a huge role and a very much an underappreciated role. 
uh, in explaining why it is that new identities came about. Uh, that that is one one thing I would say. I think another thing I would say is that the Europeans and the Americans and the mm-hmm. Russians who started these schools, they also had a, a slightly different vocabulary of space than the local mm-hmm. inhabitants. So if you go to Europe or the United States or Russia in 1850 and you ask someone, you know, you showed someone a map of the Middle East and said, what is that? The average person in the United States <laughs> or in Europe or in Russia would call it Palestine in 1850. Really? 1870. Mm. Whereas the average uh, person in Palestine, maybe they would have called it Biladish. And we're talking, let's call it 1830, 1850. By 1870, 1880, 1890, the situation already started to change. But let's say by, in 1850, the average person in Jerusalem or Jaffa or Annapolis or Nazareth would have probably called it either just by the cities. They wouldn't have used the term Palestine. They would have been like, well, I'm in Jerusalem or I'm in or I'm in Nablus. Mm-hmm. Or they would, and then you had you ask them, well, okay, but zoom out. Where where are you? Like, wh- what country are you in? Maybe they would have said the Ottoman <laughs> Empire. Maybe they would have mm-hmm. said great. They would have used the phrase Bilad Sham, the land of Sham, the land of Sham, which, yeah. which could be loosely translated as Greater Syria. Although I wouldn't translate it as Greater Syria because that is a very specific term that came about in Arabic in a very specific historical time period, which was mm. much much later than 1850. So I would not really like to use that term in English, but I would say either they would call it either by the cities or they would say Bilad Sham, or maybe they would just say the Ottoman Empire, but they probably would not call it Palestine in 1850. And I think what happened over the course of the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and 90s was that as a result of the, this influx of, of, of European travelers, of American pilgrims, of Russian missionaries, of, of German consular offices, you have tens of thousands of pilgrims and tourists coming to the Holy Land every year by World War I. And that number is just increasing throughout the late 19th and early 20th century. We're talking tens of thousands of tourists every year in a land that has 500,000 people. This is a mm-hmm. massive number of people. And you have to assume that all of those pilgrims and tourists and missionaries who are opening schools and teaching students and consular officials who are now writing and corresponding to local bureaucrats and Arabic speaking bureaucrats, that the summation of all of those influences it, it, what it did was it transferred the vocabulary of the average American and European and Russian into mm-hmm. Arabic. And so that's, and by, by the way, the term Philistine was already being used in Arabic, but just in very, very narrow contexts. So in right. 1850, the people of Ramle, the city of Ramle, did in fact call the place Palestine in my estimation. So it's not that the term Palestine was not known or was not used. It was just limited to a very small region within Mm -hmm. Palestine. I think that's my argument, at least. We could discuss and debate that if you're curious, but that is my argument. Um, And secondly, the term Palestine was was used, but in scholarly context to refer to what the land was known as in the ancient world or in previous time Mm. periods. So for the same reason that you and I have heard of the term Mesopotamia or have Mm -hmm. heard of the term Phoenicia, even Mm -hmm. though we call those places Iraq and Lebanon, Respectively, we've heard of the term Phoenicia and Mesopotamia because we know that in the 19th century or in the 18th century, uh, those terms were actually used or or, or Mm -hmm. were used to describe those places. So um, I think that is probably how a lot of people in the Middle East, especially in Palestine, may have thought of the term in, say, 1850 or 1830. That's how they thought of the term Palestine. It was probably a term they were were somewhat familiar with, but they, they but to be used to describe how the land was referred to in a previous time period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
What was the this the uh, administrative and like institutional um, status like in in Palestine uh, between in that quite like formative time period of like eighteen fifty to to nineteen hundred? I, I wonder what the like what kind of bureaucracy there was um, because you know it was part of of the Ottoman Empire for quite a long time, and as we know, Ottomans uh, I think was it either on Twitter or in your thesis, I think it's in your thesis, said that the, uh, they, they made a, an amazing job of keeping track of everything, but they also wrote absolutely terribly and made everyone's job a living hell. Um, so so there, I guess Palestine was, no, uh, was also a victim of this bureaucracy as being part of the Ottoman Empire. But I wonder what, like, because obviously there wasn't really a state as we know them today. At least from what I understand. So yeah, I wonder what is the bureaucracy like? What is the the institutions like in that time period? So the land of Palestine was never an administrative unit in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, hmm. The land was divided into different districts. Um, in the 1850s, um, uh, the, the reason I'm struggling here is because. Uh, they actually changed the district boundaries quite a bit over over the years. Mm -hmm. There were changes made in the 1830s and the 1850s and again in the 1870s and again in the 1880s. Okay, right. So, so it's not so one exact, continuous existence. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly. So like basically the way I would describe the administrative districts of the uh, of Ottoman Palestine um, before the 1870s is that the the land was divided into cities and the cities formed the basis of administrative units. So in 1850s, I believe that the, the cities within which there were administrative districts based were, um, I believe, uh, I believe Jaffa, Nablus, um, Jerusalem and, and, and Beirut and Damascus. Um, and, and, um, there may have been a couple others, um, Mm -hmm. uh, we, we could look this up and, and add in a link to, to a, a more thorough analysis in the show notes. But, um, but, but in 1872, things, things changed dramatically. So what happened in 1872 was that the uh, Ottoman Empire carved out an administrative district based mm -hmm. in Jerusalem that would report directly to Istanbul. And this was very significant because previously, all of these uh, smaller districts, the district of Jaffa, the district of Gaza, the district of uh, Jerusalem, they would report into the district of either Beirut or Damascus. So you had these mm -hmm. kind of regional powers that uh, like Damascus and Beirut, those were the regional powers in the 1850s and 1860s. The districts of Palestine reported up into them. Mm -hmm. But in 1872, the uh, Sultan uh, realized that there was great international interest in the Holy Land. Um, like I said, you had consular officials set up consular offices in, in Jerusalem throughout the 1850s and 1860s. Mm -hmm. And by the 1870s, it was obvious to the Ottomans that the, there was great Western interest in the Holy Land, um, we, which we could get into, like why Westerners were obsessed yeah, with the yeah, Holy that's Land. that's quite interesting and, as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, it's a fascinating question, but I, I think the answer is that, you know, we have to we have to, to remember that. The 1850s and 40s and 60s was a radically different time period than the present. Okay, <laughs> the average person living in Germany or in the United Kingdom or in Britain or in England or in the United States in the 1850s believed that the Bible was the Word of God. Okay, there was a kind of return to the Bible, a return to the Protestant roots, uh, or the, you know, the Protestants in the United States and also mm. I would say in, in, in many areas of Europe. 
It was this desire to sort of like, you know, return to the roots of the Bible and the way you did that. So the way you, if you really wanted to understand the Bible, right? If you really wanted to, you know, feel Jesus himself to understand what Jesus's life was like, guess what? Mm. All you got to do is go to Palestine and you can go see what Jesus's life was like. <laughs> so you could just see his great, 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 great grandkids, or maybe not his, but his contemporaries, <laughs> his great, great, yeah. great, great, great grandkids. And you can see they haven't changed in 2000 years, right? They live exactly mm-hmm. the same life that people lived 2000 yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah. And so this was the mentality in the 18th century, in the, the mm. 19th century, right? That it's really strange for me to imagine like a kind of tourism like that happening at that time period. I don't know why I, uh, I guess this like mass tourism kind of seems like a very, very modern concept, but to know that it did happen in the, uh, in the Holy land is, is a very interesting fact. Exactly. So it was part of this um, revival and interest in the ancient world. Remember, this is roughly around the same time that, you know, the universities start to uh, open up departments for Oriental studies, where mm. um, there's obviously the study, the, the, the critical, the Western critical study of the Bible is also taking place around this time. And so there's just a general interest in the Near East and the Orient. Archaeology is, is a field now that is attracting a lot of interest. Um, you know, the ancient world is getting rediscovered in the 19th century. Egyptology mm. is is emerging as a new field. Wow, like, these hieroglyphics are getting uh, um, deciphered. Again, this is all happening in the 19th century. And so there's tremendous interest in, in the Near East, as it was known in Palestine, uh, both for religious reasons, as well as more secular or more scientific or uh, reasons. So all of this is happening in the 19th century. All of this is leading to Western interest uh, in, in the Holy Land. And, and, and so you have this influx of travelers and tourists, which leads, I think, to uh, the word Palestine, like I said, which was already known and used, but in, in relatively limited context. Um, so what? So it wasn't like a new word, it, but it was a word that went from being, let's say, somewhat limited in its usage mm-hmm. to becoming much more popular and embraced by a much, much larger swath of the population. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess just going more into this, this process of like popularization of this identity, would you say it was like a rather seamless process or do you think there was definitely a bit of um, friction with like pre-existing identities or maybe even some sort of like intergenerational tension if, if this was sort of a, more of a thing amongst young people at the start? I would say there was no friction at all. In fact, I would say that it was so okay. seamless that to the best of my knowledge, we still don't really have a good account or analysis of how it happened. No one had even really observed or noticed uh, the transition. I mean, you have some works. You have Rashid Khalidi's book on the origins of a, a Palestinian national identity. Um, you have Mohammed uh, Musli, who's written about it. You have Mayor Lidfak. There are people who have who have touched on it. Uh, Yushua Porath has briefly touched on it, but you, know, you you just don't have a great account mm-hmm. to this day of how the Palestinian people uh, came into existence. I think my dissertation is probably the closest thing. But again, like, how is it that it took us until 2017 for someone to try and answer the question of like, who was the first mm. Palestinian in modern mm. history? Right. We just didn't have a good account of that. And, and to be honest, I, I still think we we lack a good account of it. I don't I would certainly not say my dissertation is the final word on the subject. In fact, I think there's much more work to be done. As I said, my focus was not really the 19th century, although I obviously tried to spend a lot of time studying the 19th century because I think that was a very, very important um, turning point in the history uh, of Palestine and the Palestinian people. 
but there's much, much, much more work to be done. Um, yeah. I think that a, ver- a much more diligent scholar would be able to find even earlier references than I found. Uh, remember, I was just, you know, I-, I was basically scanning, you know, I would spend, you know, months and months just sort of scanning through books, looking for a term. This is before, I mean, in, in many cases, we didn't have OCR, optical character recognition for Arabic texts in 2014, mm. 15, 16, when I was doing the research. I think a more diligent scholar who has more, uh, a better tools, who has resources, uh, uh, <laughs> has better resources, who can spend more time doing this now that more texts have been digitized in the past five mm. years, I think we're going to find new things. So I think we're still lacking a really a definitive account. Mm. Uh, but I would say that, um, you know, I would say my my dissertation, as well as a piece that I published together with Emmanuel Beshka, a piece on specifically uh, trying to document every known example of the word Philistine, of the word Palestinian from 1898 to 1914. We did that in a piece that came out, I think, last year, and we found something like 115 references to the term Palestinian in Arabic from 1898 to 1914. We published that a year ago, but I would say aside from those two pieces, we don't have a great account uh, of how the, the the Palestinian people came about. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting that no one's, I mean, no one that that few few people have attempted that. Yeah. Jamie, did you have something you? Uh, yeah, I get. Um, so I guess given how seamless this um, this this transition was, if you want to call it a transition. Um, would you say then that the um, the Palestinian people, or or by whatever name they they went by, were before they um, before they acquired this new identity? Would you say they were, I guess, ready for this sort of identity, or like what was what was so appealing about the identity of being a Palestinian um, that just made them so readily accepted? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I think that in order to understand why identities like Palestinian come about in history and why they proliferate. What we need to do is look at the proliferation of things like history books about Palestine, of geography books about Palestine, of atlases Mm. dedicated to Palestine, of institutions dealing with Palestine, of institutions that use the term Palestine in their titles. And so, for example, Mm -hmm. you have in the first decade and a half of the 19th century, you have a bookshop the educational uh, bookshop of Palestine that opens up in 1910. You have an agricultural association uh, called something like the Agricultural Association of Palestine that forms in the ni- roughly around 1911, whose mission is to buy up land uh, and prevent it from falling into the hands of Zionists. Uh, you have, um, for example, the Palestinian uh, scouting troop comes about roughly around this time as well. You have newspapers like Philistine, um, Palestine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an uh, attempt to start a newspaper called Palestine in 1908, in 1909, and then the one that eventually um, succeeds is founded in 1911. You have banks going by the name uh, the Palestine Bank that mm-hmm. include mm-hmm. the word Palestine on their signs that you s- start to see in photos of the old city of Jerusalem already from 1901. So you, you see, I've, I've seen a photo already from the early 1900s, the Anglo-Palestine Bank. There it is. There's a sign <laughs> using the word Palestine. Um, And it's everyone walking by that sign is now seeing the word Palestine, right? So everyone in school is picking up a a textbook called the history of Palestine, right? So I think these things are necessary if you want people to identify with a place that is abstract, that is so big that Mm -hmm. you can't see it with your own two eyes, that is so new that no one was using that term or even two, three decades ago, right? So I think in order for an identity like Palestinian to, 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 to spread, 
and to proliferate. You need the name to be in widespread circulation. You need stories about the place to be circulating. And I think those stories are stories about the history, the epics and wars fought in Palestine. You need stories about like, what is, what, what is Palestine? Well, it's these mountain ranges and these rivers uh, and these seas. Um, you need people talking about the borders, right? So if you look at these geography books, the first one published in 1904, uh, Geography of Palestine, that's already being used in, in, in schools in Palestine already, it seems from the time it was published, because it was really published as a textbook. Um, and so, you know, you have kids learning, oh, the borders of Palestine are from the river to the sea, uh, <laughs> from Sidon to the southern desert. They're learning that in 1904 in Jerusalem right. and in Nazareth. So I think when you have these uh, things taking place, maps, uh, maps are another incredibly important thing, um, because I think in order to 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 identify the place, you probably like you probably want to like see what it looks like. I think mm -hmm. that that you can't see Palestine with your own two eyes. It's too big for that. But if it's visualized on a piece of paper, you can see it. OK, I'm from Palestine. I think that's super important. And so roughly, again, around 1890s, uh, early first decade of, of the 20th century, this is when maps of Palestine also right. start to proliferate. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think those are the things that lead to the proliferation of a Palestinian identity. <laughs> and so alongside this proliferation of the identity, if we if we slowly kind of move through history now from the 1890s and 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 stuff into the maybe the first decade of the 1900s that is when the kind of first uh waves of emigration begin right to to palestine uh especially of of jewish of the jewish population um i can never remember how you pronounce it is it aliyah 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 yeah um so how did this how did these like immigration waves, how were they different from the previous waves, which were of, like you said, of missionaries, of, of uh, Europeans and Germans, et cetera? Um, I guess, why, why are they so important in Palestinian history? From the, from the time period, roughly around the 1880s, you start to see uh, an influx of Jewish immigrants. And I think those Jewish immigrants, so the first major wave uh, was 1882, I believe. Oh, right. Sorry. Then, this was the second one that I'm talking about. Right, right. Yeah. And then you had another wave uh, in the 1890s. Um, I think the third wave is 1910s um, and then fourth and fifth waves in the 1920s and 30s. Okay. Um, right. You even had waves of Jewish immigrants before that, by the way, in the 1870s, you had a wave. Right. Um, okay. And even, even, by the way, the idea of Zionism really dates back even earlier. Mm -hmm. um, you have actually uh, Christian, the, the, the origins of Zionism really date back to Christian Europe. Um, in the 1830s, you already have Christians in Europe thinking about the solution to the Jewish problem of Europe is to relocate the Jews from Europe to Palestine. So that that idea actually is a or Zionism originally is like a super uh, originates, I think, primarily is like an anti-Semitic European then, idea. Yeah. <laughs> ironically, gets embraced by Jews later. But like, leave that aside for a minute. Yeah. Um, but but in any case, the, the 1880s is really when the I would say the modern Zionist movement really starts to gain steam. And I would say really not until the 19, 1900s uh, when it's pretty obvious what's happening. OK, and mm -hmm. what's happening is that and th these movements, um, these waves of immigration are, are different than earlier, earlier waves uh, of migrations, let's say from the 1870s or even some of these like, you know, the uh, uh, waves of like German Templars in the 1870s. Right. There, there are other waves of essentially mm -hmm. migrations to Palestine from Europe in the 19th century. But there's something unique about the Zionists that come beginning in, let's say, the 1890s and 1900s, which is that 
their intentions are different. Their intentions are, are, are actually stated pretty clearly in their writings. You can go the first Zionist uh, Congress. We're talking 1897. We mm-hmm. already know from that time forward, really, what their intention is. Their intention is to build a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Um, yeah. And we can debate what a Jewish homeland in Palestine means. Uh, but but for a majority of Zionists, it, it really means political control of Palestine. There, of course, are cultural Zionists who want a more of a, um, a cultural revival reviving the Hebrew language, reviving poetry, Hebrew poetry, um, maybe cultural Zionist associations around, I don't know, like Hebrew culture, whatever that is. But basically mm-hmm. the, the main thrust of the Zionists in the, already in the 1900s is, is to control the land. Um, is to, and and, and the, the way this starts to, to materialize and have real, real impact on the, the, the Arabic uh, speaking inhabitants of Palestine is the desire to control labor. And so the very first wave in the 1880s, actually those Zionists didn't really care so much about um, being laborers themselves. They employed Mm -hmm. Arabs uh, on the farms that they uh, bought. So you have in 1880s, you have Zionists moving to Palestine, but for the most part, they're actually just employing the Arabs that were already living and working the land that they bought, which leads to some conflict, but, but, really not so much, right? Like very little mm-hmm. conflict in the 1880s because like- The boss changes, okay, the labor doesn't, yeah. <laughs> instead of a Arab tenant land, landlord in Jaffa, now you have a Zionist tenant. Uh, so you have a mm-hmm. Zionist landowner, maybe also in Jaffa or maybe in Tel Aviv now, but like basically your status doesn't really change that much. You're still uh, uh, not a landowner. You're still a peasant. You're still toiling the soil. And instead of a Arab owning the land, a, a Jew owns the land. But like basically not that much changes. Beginning in the 1890s and 1900s, this does start to change. Zionists start to believe that in order for them to be, um, to, to, to create a Jewish homeland in Palestine, they need to t- till the soil. They need to shed themselves of this image as a diaspora Jew and the way, and they need to be strong and, and they need to till the soil. And this is going to reinvent themselves, right? The new Hebrew. This was the idea that we're a new people. Mm-hmm. We're reinventing ourselves as Jews. We're no longer this weak diaspora population subject to all kinds of horrible atrocities by the European powers. No, we are taking control of our destiny. We are going to till the soil ourselves. And in order to do that, guess what happens to the local Arab farmers? Well, they need to go <laughs> because it's our land yeah. and we're going to toil the soil. Not the air. So, so this cultural shift is um, this like mindset shift. How I guess how did you find? How do we know about this? And how do we know that this was like quite uh, popular uh, rather than I guess just like a few eminent speakers or, or writers? This is very well documented. I mean, this is not controversial. What I'm saying. Uh, if you go and read any account of the history of Zionism, everyone will tell you what I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. Zionists at a certain point um, basically started to realize that um, in order for them to achieve what they thought was their uh, ultimate end, which was the, I would say, the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, in order for them to achieve that, um, they wanted they wanted to not only own the land, but they wanted to till the soil. Um, in order to, to be the, um, in order to till the soil on the land they owned, they needed to displace the people Sorry, that guess, were already I, living there. I guess my question was also just like, how was this idea popularized? Like, were, you know, I, I'm guessing not all the Zionists kind of just woke up one day and were thinking this, like, were, were there like uh, newspapers or, or like political groups? Like, I wonder how, 
that um, philosophy spread throughout uh, Palestine? So it's a great question. I would say, first of all, the, the philosophy is spreading in Eastern Europe first. Um, okay. Because remember, you have communities of Jews in the Pale Settlement, which is where a majority of Jews in Europe live. Uh, they live in places that are, you know, in today, what is today, Poland, Russia, um, Belarus, Lithuania. This is where a majority of Jews uh, in Europe live. Some also live in Germany and France and, and the United and Britain and uh, England and Scotland. Right. But the, the, the majority live in Eastern Europe and in Eastern Europe, Jews are facing uh, pogroms. They're being slaughtered in the tens of thousands. There's massive, there's major pogroms throughout the 1890s and early 20th century. And I think what the, the result of these pogroms, which are essentially slaughter, slaughter, uh, massacres of Jews, what as a result of the these massacres, Jews start to ask themselves, like, how is it that we can escape our situation of poverty and disenfranchisement uh, and weakness? And and the and the answer that many and that some Jews provide is. Um, is Zionism. And, and so I think it, it's really a result. I mean, if, if I had to guess, you know, why is it that, you know, this new attitude towards kind of becoming uh, the master of our own domain, why is it that that attitude comes about in, in Jewish circles in Eastern Europe from the 1880s onwards? I would say it's driven by that oppression that they were facing by the Russian czar and Russian uh, empire uh, in the Pale Settlement in Eastern Europe in the late 19th century. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting how the identity. I, I don't know if you would you would share this this feeling or this idea, but that the identity of Palestinian is really like intimately linked to like how one identifies as Palestinian becomes quite intimately linked to how one identifies as a Zionist uh, from kind of that point on, I guess. And those two identities, it seems, still today, are very much intertwined in some kind of like like a self-defined and also like anti-defined like definite defined by what is not also um and but what you said before about the uh the homeland uh discourse starting much earlier than we thought that's really interesting because i yeah I, I could have sworn that like in history class and stuff we learned a lot about the balfour declaration you know quite like famous uh declaration of jewish national home in palestine um but that and the um what is it called the the case in france uh where the guy was accused of stealing plans or weapons or something oh, what was it called i can't remember uh the, yeah <laughs> there was that french soldier who was unfairly yeah, yeah. accused and i think he was in the end he was his name he was put to death um oh, i'm right, also his name is also escaping my yeah, um, my memory now, oh, but I know exactly well, what you're talking about. Yes, so so this was like early 1900s, I guess. The uh, Dreyfus early... affair, I believe, is what it's yes, called. Yes, Dreyfus. Yeah. So I yeah. So I it's really interesting to me that the um this is quite clear that it started much earlier, and yet uh, we are taught that this kind of began with things like the Dreyfus affair, with things like the Balfour Declaration. I I wonder wh why you think that is that there's a little bit of um a blindness to this history. So first let me address the question around, can you imagine a Palestinian identity without Zionism? Is it possible that a Palestinian identity would have come about had there not been a Zionist movement or Jewish immigration to Palestine? I think the answer is almost certainly yes. Zion, a Palestinian identity, um, I think 
I wouldn't say it predates Zionism, but I would say it came about in parallel to Zionism, not really being much influenced by it in the very, very beginning. And I do, and, and that's important to point out because there is, there is a, um, uh, I think some some desire, at least on the Zionist part, to try to, um, to try to like consider the very existence of the Palestinians as um, almost as a, a result of of Zionism. Which, by the way, even if that was true, I don't really think it matters. I don't think it has any political implications today. But I actually think that's just false. I don't think that's what happened. I think that the Palestinians who start to call themselves Palestinians in the 1890s and early 1900s, there's not really much reason to believe that Zionism had anything to do with it. I think that um, already, by the way, in the 1870s and 80s, you have many instances of Europeans using the term Palestinian and examples of Americans using the term Palestinian to talk Mm -hmm. about the Arab inhabitants of Palestine. And that those things, in fact, predated Zionist uh, immigration. Uh, and, and if you really look at the first instances when it's used, you know, this this book that Khalil Beras translates from Russian uh, to to Arabic in which he uses the term Palestinian. I don't think the word Zionism or Zionist uh, immigrants come up at all in that book. This mm. is not a book about Zionism. It has nothing to do with Zionism. It's a book about Palestine. It's a book about you know Palestine's seasons, about the crops of Palestine, about the people of Palestine, their traditions, their customs. Um, it has nothing to do with Zionism. And so I, I just don't really think uh, Zionism is relevant for understanding why Palestine, uh, a Palestinian identity comes about in the first place. Mm-hmm. Having said that, very soon afterwards, very soon after a Palestinian identity comes about, it it it's, it becomes politicized, and, and 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 I think to understand how how you go from people calling themselves Palestinians to people saying, "Oh my God, my Palestinian identity is super important to me." Uh, <laughs> you know, Palestine is a sacred and holy place, and we need to defend it and protect it at all costs. I think that leap, that shift, you do mm-hmm. need to you do need to to uh to look at Zionism because Zionism plays an absolutely critical role in explaining how this. Identity goes from being an identity to becoming an extremely important identity, so important that people are willing to even die for it. So I I would say that is that is important. Zionism is important to explain that shift. Hmm. Sorry, I think my internet's acting up slightly. Um, If we if we move on a little bit to the British uh, mandate period. How do you think uh, that this time period affected, how do you see it affecting the Palestinian identity? Um, I guess as well as maybe just, if you can, a bit of the history of, of how British rule affected Palestine as well as a, as a place. I would say that the reason uh, most people start to talk about the Israel-Palestine conflict or maybe even identify the beginning of the Israel-Palestine conflict with, say, the Balfour Declaration, say, the British Mandate, is precisely because those things had such a profound impact on the trajectory of the Israel-Palestine question. You're absolutely right about that. Um, uh, Before 1917, Zionism... uh, was a topic of discussion among Palestinians. If you go open the Palestinian press in the 1910s, you're going to find tons of articles on Zionism. If you go to the Ottoman parliament, even in 1912, the Ottomans debated Zionism in the Ottoman parliament. So it's not Hmm. that Zionism wasn't uh, important. It, It was. People talked about it. But 
uh, even up until the eve of World War One, you only had tens of thousands of Zionist immigrants living in Palestine. It was a relatively small population. I think mm. by World War One, the figure was I think maybe something like eighty thousand. We, we we could we could uh, fact check that if, if someone has the demographic data handy. But we're talking tens of thousands. Um. So, it, 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 and so they represented less than ten percent of the total population. They didn't have a ton of political influence. Most Zionists were not Ottoman citizens. They weren't voting in in elections. In fact, most of the Zionist immigrants were actually illegal immigrants. They didn't have uh, residency oh, permits. Really? They were not legally allowed to move to the empire. I mean, that really you don't have to get into that. But um, that's quite basically funny they came on tourist though. visas and just stay, overstayed their visas. So, um, so anyways, like, uh, but all of that changes once the British. Occupy Palestine in 1917 and 1918 for obvious reasons, right? The British, uh, in it, 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 through the Balfour Declaration, uh, and then through a number of policies that they uh, implement in the 1920s, um, encourage and promote and facilitate Jewish immigration to Palestine. So instead of so, so the Jews go from being let's say between five and ten percent of the population in the years before World War One, um, you know, by uh, by the the eve of the British withdrawal from Palestine in 1947. The Zionists are now one third uh, of the population of Palestine. Mm. They go from being 5% to, you know, they basically, what's that, a 6X or 7X, their percentage of the population of Palestine. And so, um, so that, I mean, and the reason they, they're able to do that is because the British have uh, uh, not only allowed them to move, immigrate to Palestine, but actually encouraged them. They've actually facilitated uh, that immigration to Palestine by giving those new Jewish immigrants passports and 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 supporting their moves to Palestine. So um, I think for those reasons, it, it's probably fair to say that this conflict goes from being, you know, a, a tension that's simmering on the horizon to one in which really the contours of the conflict very much uh, come in, in, into view. And so by 1947, by by the time the British uh, withdraw, that you have what something like you know a, a million people living in Palestine, maybe 700,000. Oh, sorry, those numbers are wrong. Something like a million and a half people living in Palestine. Um, you know, a, a million uh, Arabs, 500,000 Jews. Um, and so, um, and and so you already have what what appears to be basically a divided uh, a land that has two peoples living in it. Both of them now claiming it's theirs. Both of them uh, basically saying that. Uh, you know, we want Jews claiming we want a Jewish state in Palestine, Palestinians claiming they want a Palestinian state in Palestine. And so that is during the 1920s, 30s, and 40s when you could say that some of the contours of the modern Israel-Palestine conflict come into focus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Following this date um, with all the refugees and the emigrants uh, from Palestine, um, I just really like to know how the Palestinian identity has changed and how it still kind of persists in this international diaspora that has um, this formed. Um, if it still does exist in the um, Palestinians who have left and their descendants. I think diasporas play a critical role in identities. By the way, I think this is true already from the late 19th, early 20th century. In fact, I discussed this in my dissertation, but many of the earliest instances of the phrase Palestinian in Arabic appear in publications that are coming out of the diaspora communities mm. in the new world. So you have large Palestinian um, communities in places like Chile, Argentina, Brazil, um, Latin America as well, in places like El Salvador, um, Nicaragua, I think, um, mm. 
Costa Rica, I think you have population. So, so basically throughout, and of course the United States as well. So you have, uh, in fact, if and if you look at many of these early instances of the phrase Palestinian, you're going to find them in these diaspora communities because I think the reason is pretty obvious. It's because if I'm uh, if I'm a uh, if I'm from Bethlehem and now I'm living in Santiago, Chile, okay. Well, um, I think first of all. You know, I'm probably going to identify pretty closely with that person from Nazareth who also happens to be in Santiago, Chile. And guess what? The shared identity between the the Nazarene and the Bethlehemite is Palestinian. Hmm. That is their shared identity in Santiago, Chile. And so I think that's one of the reasons why diaspora communities uh, tend to form even around Palestine specifically. Uh, Also, also, by the way, Ottoman Empire, uh, you have an Ottoman identity that... uh, proliferates in in the diaspora, as well as a Christian identity, uh, as well as a Syrian identity. But all of these identities are proliferating in the diaspora, I would say even more so than they are uh, in Bethlehem, in Nazareth, in in the places where these people came from. And I think uh, that even that that's even more so the case, I think, in in, in the post-1948 period, where you have large Palestinian communities are now living in Lebanon, in Syria, in Jordan, uh, in Egypt. Uh, and those Palestinian communities uh, have very, very strong Palestinian identities. I would say even more so than Palestinians who, who are left in Palestine. And I think the reason is obvious. Uh, and by the way, th- this also explains why the PLO, the PFLP, mm-hmm. uh, the DFLP, uh, Fatah, all of the Palestinian political parties uh, that come about in the years after 1948, guess what? They all come about in the diaspora, not in Palestine itself. And I think the reason, again, is because, first of all, if you're a Palestinian living in Lebanon, well, you don't have a Lebanese passport. You're legally not allowed to work in Lebanon. Uh, you're basically only allowed to live in your Palestinian refugee camp. So your Palestinian identity is going to be felt real strongly. Um, yeah, the same would be true if you're a Palestinian in a refugee camp in Jordan, in places like uh, the West Bank, or if you're a Palestinian refugee in Gaza, where, again, you're not given, uh, you know, you're not, you may or may not be given a Jordanian or Egyptian citizenship. So you're gonna you're gonna feel your Palestinianness, I think much more so than you would maybe even if you're in Palestine, because if you're in Palestine, your Palestinian identity is under assault. Okay, you are not allowed to talk about Palestine. In fact, the word Palestine is actually a, really is becomes a, a taboo word in Israel post 1948. It's kind of erased basically from memory. You're not learning about Palestine in schools. Um, you, you know, you're you're not. You know, your Palestine identity is basically being actively being suppressed in Palestine. Um, so I would say for all of those reasons, today still some say there was never a Palestine or like deny the existence ever of such a thing as Palestine, right? That's exactly right. It's, it's in fact, in even today, this idea that there never was a Palestine identity, there never was a place called Palestine. This is a very popular myth, Mm. Uh, it's 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 widely shared and, and and discussed on. In, in forums on 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 Twitter and and Facebook and it's 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 propagated to this day uh, and you see it appearing by the way not just in places on social media but uh, influential politicians believe this people like Ted Cruz people like Newt Gingrich people like Mike Huckabee repeat and regurgitate this nonsense so there there, there is a belief that persists to this day among very influential people. Um, that there is no such thing as Palestine, that these people never identified as Palestine. So you're absolutely mm. right. Yeah. And and I guess this poses a lot of questions for the future of uh, of 
of Palestine. And and I know in your in your thesis you say you're not a, uh, was a futurist. You're, you're a historian. So I guess you maybe I know a lot of historians don't like to make um, to make um, predictions about the future, but you do say in your conclusion that the rise of uh, the dec the decline of sedentary life and that the rise of mobile populations uh, could eventually at some point have quite impactful consequences to identities like Palestinian. Um, and are there are there more Palestinians outside of Palestine today than there are inside of like, I guess, the legal, uh, the current like West Bank, Gaza, I guess. I, th I think there are, right? It would not surprise me if there are. I don't know those numbers offhand. Yeah. Uh, I think the the demographic data I'm I feel like I've heard most recently is that between the river and the sea, so uh, including everything, mm -hmm. Israel proper, Palestine proper, West Bank, Gaza, everything, you have something like a roughly equal number of Jews and Palestinians. What is that like? Roughly eight million Jews, eight million Palestinians, something like that. Um, I may okay. be getting those numbers slightly wrong. Are mm. there eight more or less than eight million Palestinians in the diaspora? I do not know. It probably depends yeah, on how yeah. you define Palestinian. Are we yeah, talking yeah, yeah. one Palestinian grandparent, one Palestinian parent, <laughs> or self-identified? Self-identified or not, right? It probably depends a lot yeah, on yeah. how you define Palestinian. But but I, I guess the point still stands that they're, regardless of like the the detail and the, the exact percentage, that there's quite a lot of Palestinians outside of Palestine. Um, and you know one of the main things that has lasted, I think, that has been connected to the Palestinian identity throughout time has been the actual like place itself, right? The actual like coordinates almost of the place. So being like you said with the idea of Santiago and 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 things like that, like being taken out of that coordinate coordinate space, I think does deal obviously a blow in some way to the uh to the longevity especially of the identity right so i i guess i'm wondering like how how do you see this this evolving i guess it also depends on the actual israel-palestine conflict itself but how do you see the uh actual identity of palestinians evolve with the generations outside of palestine as well being quite quite numerous I think if you ask Palestinians in the diaspora, I think many of them feel very strongly about their Palestinian identity. Certainly mm -hmm. that's my experiences. Uh, I have a lot of friends who grew up in the United States or grew up outside of Palestine, but um, feel very strongly, uh, feel a very strong connection to Palestine. In fact, I think in many cases, the most politicized, the most politically motivated folks mm -hmm. on Palestine tend to be, maybe not, I, I don't know if I would say that, I don't know if I totally agree with this, but you certainly have many, many very politically active Palestinians in the diaspora. I think the Palestinians in Palestine um, and, it, or, and or in Israel, um, first of all, if you're living in a place like Ramallah or Nablus or Janine, to be politically active means to basically be a criminal. If mm -hmm. you protest against the Israeli occupation, you'll get arrested. You will not be able to get a work permit to enter Israel. You will not be able to get a travel permit to leave the West Bank, all the more so in Gaza. Um, I mean, forget about Gaza. It's an open air prison in the first place. Like you can't yeah, leave yeah, even yeah. if uh, you got up. I mean, there are no permits given to Palestinians to leave Gaza. But um, but basically, like if you're in the West Bank, you are subject to extreme political repression and violence if you are politically active and if you really show any signs of being 
you know, supporting Palestinian rights uh, at all. I mean, it's, it's illegal to wave a Palestinian flag in Ramallah. Mm. I don't yeah, think people yeah. realize this. It's illegal to wave a Palestinian flag. Uh, sorry, not maybe not Ramallah, but um, it's certainly in Area C of the West Bank um, and, and, and Area B as well. It's the Israeli military that's in control. Um, in Area A, that the Palestinian police allow Palestinian flags, but in areas B and C of the West Bank, which is area C is 60% of the West Bank, okay, in mm-hmm, terms of mm-hmm. land, physical territory. And if you're one of the 100,000 Palestinians living in area C of the West Bank, you were forbidden from waving a Palestinian flag. Yeah, yeah You will yeah, be arrested yeah. for that. So I think for that reason, Palestinians in Palestine who want to live a good life, want to get a good job, want to travel, oftentimes they're just like, to hell with politics. I just want to live a normal life. So I yeah, think, yeah. you know, maybe, the, and then in Israel, you have a similar issue whereby if you're Palestinian and are super politically active, that could lead to problems in your place of employment. Uh, you, you, you're probably going to face discrimination, for example, in housing uh, or maybe applying to medical school or you're going to face discrimination as a Palestinian in Israel doing any number of things. And yeah, so you, yeah. maybe you feel like you want to mute your Palestinian identity for the same reason someone who comes from a discriminated against group in the United States would want mm-hmm. to kind of mute their identity to, just to blend in. Mm-hmm. So again, like you have Palestinians in Israel, almost I've met Palestinians who don't even want to be called Palestinian. They're like, okay, fine. I'm Arab, but I'm Israeli. And they want to be known as Israeli so that they, hmm. because they just want to live a normal life and they're not a political right, person. Right. And, I, and I understand that. And, and, and so, but, but in the diaspora, I think in many places, Palestinians, in order to um, kind of like, I would say that they don't have, uh, they don't grow up with Arabic in many cases, or maybe, you know, they grew up with a bit of Arabic, so they don't, they don't maybe feel the connection as much. Maybe they want to differentiate themselves from the, their, uh, you know, whoever, if they grew up in a place like Texas. I mean, look at, I don't know if you've seen the Netflix show um, that just came out recently of Mo, the Palestinian guy. I watched a few episodes, but like, oh, no, you get this, now he, but you get this sense that there's this desire for him uh, to mm-hmm. find ways of connecting to Palestine. You know, because he, he doesn't, he wasn't, he doesn't live there. He, he doesn't necessarily speak Arabic on a day-to-day basis, right? His, so he doesn't have the same inherent connection. So he's looking for it. He's trying to find, you know, other Palestinians. He maybe, he joins a Palestinian cultural association. He wants to send his kids to some, you know, Palestine Sunday school or Muslim or Christian Sunday school, right? So basically I think there is reason to believe, and, and I don't, I don't know the scholarship on this and I'd be curious you know, if, if, if what, what the scholarship says, but I will certainly predict or hypothesize that Palestinians growing up in the diaspora may actually have even a stronger connection in some cases to Palestine. Hmm. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting. Uh, I, I guess it's almost quite a unique case or at least or at least quite a special case of, of diaspora identification. Because uh, from, from like my own experience in my own diaspora and, and like, and seeing and witnessing others and, and reading about them, it seems like, yeah, with, as the generations uh, kind of go on, uh, identity kind of becomes muddled and and porous and, and things start to seep in from, you know, the actual place you're living in. The language is so important as well. Like, you know, I'm, well, I guess I'm uh, on my dad's side, I'm a second generation uh, here in, in Europe. And like, I don't speak a word of Arabic. Like, I mean, okay, <laughs> I know a few senses and every year I go back to Tunisia and my Arabic just like zoops up like that. And I, I, I can speak a bit more, 
but I wouldn't say that I speak Arabic. And like, that's quite massive in terms of my identity as a, as at least part, partly as a Tunisian, because Arabic is just a huge portion of that is like being able to communicate with the people that also identify as you. Um, and so, yeah, so it's really interesting, like from other diasporas that I've seen and, and been in, it, it, it just doesn't, um, it doesn't seem to be the case that people seem uh, incre- have this increased like feeling of identity with the place. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about your gathering uh, of documents and kind of the how of uh, you've done this this work. Um, and I thought we could maybe start with the uh, Tagarov story that that you write about. Could you? Uh, I don't know if you if if that uh, if you remember that that means something to you, Tagarov. <laughs> Uh, actually, I'm not entirely sure no? what you're referring to. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, well, there's just a small anecdote in your thesis about going to a, a library. I think it was, was it in Lebanon, potentially in Lebanon. Um, and you wanted to impress, uh, you write that you wanted to impress the the people there, like coming up and, and basically uh, showing that you Tagavor. can speak. Tagavor. Oh, Tagavor. Did I say, what did I say? Um, Did I say Tagarov? Maybe different. I think. Okay, <laughs> Tagavor. My bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I was being a little bit tongue in cheek in that anecdote, but yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I was trying to get access to the. So there's a, a, an Armenian community in Jerusalem that dates back, uh, I believe, many centuries, but um, certainly dates back uh, since the First World War, when some Armenians settled in in Jerusalem after the Armenian genocide. And um, those uh, and, and there's a, a, an Armenian patriarch in Jerusalem that has a very big library. And, um, and I was trying to get access to that library. And so I walked in um, and I think I, I had I had studied uh, classical Armenian for a few months uh, during my uh, graduate studies. Um, and don't ask why. Uh, but um, <laughs> I at the time, I thought I was I wanted to do more research on World War One. And mm. uh, in greater Syria, in the Levant more generally, and you had all these Armenian accounts from refugees who had settled in various parts of Syria after they were expelled and massacred. And in Anatolia, you had all these Armenians who wound up in places like Deir Ezzor, like Beirut, like Jerusalem, and they had mm. a lot of and and they produced a lot of documents written in Armenian. So mm. I, I, at some point, I had the crackpot idea of trying to learn Armenian. That didn't go so well. But um, <laughs> but basically, I knew the alphabet, at least. I could, I could actually read the Armenian script. That is no longer the case. Nice. At the time, oh. <laughs> when I penned those uh, words to paper, I, I could actually read the script. Um, and so I, I just uh, made some joke about how, but I didn't really know very much Armenian itself. At the time, I did know that the way to say king, the word for king in Armenian is, or at least in classical Armenian, might be completely different in modern Armenian, but <laughs> in classical Armenian is Tagavor. Tagavor. And so okay, I just yeah. made this joke about how, so I walk into the Armenian patriarch, uh, patriarchate library, start speaking to them in Arabic because it's you're in the old city of Jerusalem. They all speak Arabic. Uh, and so the joke was, yeah, like I was, wa- I walked in hoping 
to spot the word Tagavor someplace on the wall and be like, look, Tagavor, and, 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 and have them marvel in my mastery of Armenian. Uh, but when the time came, I forgot the word Tagavor. And so it, it just didn't really work out. Um, yeah. Oh, damn. Well, so, so how does that actually work? Do you just kind of like find uh, a lead, I guess, first to go off on? Or, or do you kind of like uh, spot a library first and, and go for it and kind of like look for anything that could help? How, how do you go? What's your process? Doing historical research in the Middle East is not easy. Okay. Uh, I would describe the most talented historians in the Middle East as those who are able to creatively uh, find primary sources that other people have not found before. Um, because um, because there's there's just for example in the case of with the Palestinians there is no Palestinian national archive um, the mm. Palestinians don't have a state uh, usually archives are the territory of states and so mm. not having a state there, there are attempts to create one in Amman I believe there there's some kind of Palestinian archive in Abu Dis in um, which is in the West Bank which it's basically just on the outskirts of Jerusalem but there mm. isn't really a Palestinian national archive that serves as the the collection the collected literary heritage the collected archival heritage of the Palestinian people that does not exist in lieu of that um you can go uh to the places I mentioned to Abidus to Amman to the, the the Israeli National Library in uh in Jerusalem where the abandoned books collection is housed. And by the way, I put the phrase abandoned books in quotation marks because they were not abandoned. They were stolen, but that's a, a topic for another conversation. But in any case, like there are something like 50,000 volumes of books and manuscripts that are sitting that are Palestinian books and manuscripts, which to the best of my knowledge is the single largest repository of Palestinian hmm. archival materials and books uh, anywhere in the world. It's sitting in the possession of the state of Israel in the Hebrew National, the Israeli National Library in Gifatram in Jerusalem. But those are kind of the known sources, right? That's where you would go if um, you wanted to find some source that was known, that has been cataloged by a librarian or by an archivist. Uh, but the way to find the real juicy stuff, which is what you want to find if you're a historian, because you want to uncover something about the past that people don't know about. Yeah. There are a lot of ways of doing that. One of them is. You, you got to be creative. You got to go around and literally like, you know, um, in the case of Bashar Dumani, who wrote a very excellent book on Palestinian history from 1700 to 1900, he literally went door to door in Nablus. He literally hmm. went door to door, knocking on people's doors, asking them, do you have any family papers? And lo and behold, the most prominent families of Nazareth now uh, had family papers to share with him. And they shared with him. Uh, you have Salim Tamari who is another brilliant historian of Palestine. He has also gone around. Again, I don't even know how he finds this stuff, but he finds the memoirs and publishes the memoirs of people like Wasif Jauhariye, Arif Al-Arif, Ihsan um, Uh So these are Palestinians from the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, who left behind memoirs and diaries that, I don't even know where he finds this stuff, where he gets access to this stuff, but he has found them, uh, trans transcribed them, in some cases even translated them and published them oh. in Arabic. Um, that's another strategy. Uh, I've I've gone to, uh, again, I, I was aware of the Khalidiyah Library in Jerusalem, but uh, was aware that they had a private library and 
uh, and so try to access that. Again, that library is not really is not really publicly accessible. Uh, there isn't really a, a published list of the, the the items in the catalog. So again, it's somewhat sort of like off the grid. How do you get access to it? Unclear. Um, so you have to be creative and resourceful if you want to write original, if you want to find original sources to study Middle East history. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and this problem of access is one that, yeah, I remember you mentioning in, in your work um, around like um, the, the, pr the privacy of some of those documents or like the kind of the protection that, that is, uh, that's present, like a, there was even one anecdote of, of someone telling you to go check this exist this one other library which you knew apparently did not exist or that there was not this, this library just didn't exist so so what why is there like a secondary kind of like what's the reason that so some of these documents are either not publicly accessible or like very made difficult kind of for historians to do their work with Look, in some cases, we know exactly why the documents are made obscure. In, in the case of uh, the Israeli archives, the Israeli archivists have um, tried very hard to identify any document that implicates uh, previous Israeli leaders in any type of criminal criminal activity mm. and to, to hide all of those documents from the public. Mm -hmm. In fact, just uh, a month ago, in September 2022, uh, Benny Morris, uh, together, I forget his co-author, but they published a piece uh, documenting extensive use of biological warfare in 1948. Now, the, the, we previously had reasons to believe that the Zionist community in 1948 uh, used biological weapons. They poisoned wells and water sources. We, had, we, hmm. we knew anecdotes from Palestinians, so we had reason to believe that there was some poisoning that took place. There were accounts of it, very brief and terse accounts of it, but we certainly didn't have the documentation from the Israeli military archives themselves um, because mm -hmm. many of, but, but uh, Benny Morris, uh, Benny Morris, and, and leave aside his politics, but, but the research he's done uh, documenting uh, the use of biological warfare, of poisoning wells and water sources in the 1948 war is now uncontroversial. The documentation is very clear. And um, and in fact, it came all the way from the top. So it came all the way from David Ben Gurion, authorized. Mm. And we have wow. we have now the smoking gun. We know yeah, yeah. that David Ben Gurion committed uh, war crimes, uh, poisoning wells, killing innocent civilians during 1948. So in that case, it was historians basically figuring out the code, the code words that were used by Zionist leaders in 48. The, the same code words that the, the Zionist archives today, that Israeli archivists and librarians today were not able to figure out, historians have been able to figure out. So that is one mm -hmm. strategy uh, for, for uncovering things about the past, is deciphering uh, the code in documents. I think another strategy, like I said, is the being resourceful. But I think the question you asked was sort of... Um, why is it that um, so, so why is it that these documents are hard to access or hidden or, mm -hmm. or obscure? I think to cover up criminal acts is, is probably the most uh, the most obvious reason. And that was, by the way, not just, uh, you know, the Israelis obviously committed uh, all kinds of horrific uh, acts in, in 1948 and beyond. The same is true in the Ottoman archives, by the way. Um, the Ottomans have purged the archive of any evidence uh, of, of having committed an a genocide against the Armenians. Uh, that evidence is also uh, obfuscated and obscured. Um, I think, look, I think the other reason is just a question of resources. 
um, you know, ma- uh, maintaining an archive um, requires money, it requires funding, it requires resources. Um, and in a world where you don't have, you know, a, a budget for these things, you don't have really a national government that's dedicated, you know, that that can dedicate however much money to the main the maintenance and the preservation and the salaries and the upkeep um, and the digitization of all of these documents and manuscripts and records and it's just much, much less likely you're going to have some central repository of them. So I think uh, the number, the number one reason would be like intentional obfuscation to cover up criminal behavior. I think the second reason is just lack of funding and lack of resources. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we're going to slowly start to close up because we're running on an hour and a half nearly. I don't want to make this episode too long either to discourage or else it'll discourage people from even clicking play. <laughs> I know, I know people these days are like, they, they want them short and sweet. Um, they can just put it on fast track. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you, do you have anything that you're working on these days? Like what, what's your, um, what are your plans currently? Are you still doing research or like, what are you hoping to do in your future? I think that the main thing I'm interested in at this point is trying to make historical research and scholarly research more generally more accessible to broader audiences. Uh, mm-hmm. That is to say, I'm not really doing a whole lot of original research right now. By the way, I, I have a day job as well, which m- means oh. that my nine to five is spent doing things other than uh, thinking about uh, researching and writing about Palestine. Yeah. Um and so, uh, and and so, but but the thing that I, I actually love doing, and I think a lot more of it needs to get done because it's primarily not coming from the academics. They're not incentivized mm-hmm. to make their research more accessible to broader audiences. Nope. <laughs> uh, the, well, they're not incentivized to do that to get tenure, mm-hmm. um, and, yeah, and to yeah. get academic jobs and to get a, a grants and fellowships and funding mm-hmm. to do the research. Uh, it, it, they're incentivized to publish in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, but not make that research accessible to broader audiences. So I think there is a huge gap and there's a huge opportunity uh, for people who do have the background and interest and, and access to the research itself to, to, to try and translate that research, to try and make it more digestible, to try mm. and clarify it, to try and distill it uh, and, to, and to share it in bite-sized chunks, in formats that people are more interested in consuming it, be it audio, be it video, be it Twitter. So I think that... So, so the thing that I'm more, most focused on right now is, is reading academic research on Palestine, uh, including work I've done. Obviously, that's where I've started. That's, that's the work that's yeah. easiest for me to translate and make more accessible. Yeah, of course. But also other work as well is to try and make it more accessible to broad audiences, because I think that is absolutely what is needed most right now. Nice. Awesome. Um, is there something that you'd like to shout out for people who can uh maybe who are more interested in your work or uh where they can kind of find you i know you have a website as well could you give us the url <laughs> yeah so if you want to uh, follow along you can follow me on twitter which is underscore zach foster you can also uh, follow me on youtube i create youtube content and you can just find me my name is zachary foster um, and if you want to access uh documents and maps i've share uh, manuscripts, documents, ar- archival documents, and maps that I've collected over the years. I share as much of it as I can, as I have time to digitize, on a website called palestinenexus.com. That's the word Palestine, followed by the word nexus.com. And that's also in my Twitter bio, which you can find there as well. Okay, awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for your work. Yes, thank you thank for you, taking the time to outside of your nine to five day job as well to to do all of this because I know it's it's really invaluable and there's a lot of questions mm -hmm. there that that are fascinating and have yeah. quite I think important implications, uh, not just for identity but also for um, all sorts of political things. And I know it could be quite uh, intense probably and like emotionally but also energy wise so uh so yeah thank you so much for doing what you do and for having written such an interesting paper as well um thanks for coming on the show and yeah we look forward to seeing more from you yeah. I, i'm definitely i've subscribed on youtube so i'm <laughs> i'm following up on the the new updates <laughs> thanks so much for having me on